0: Thank you for listening to this message from Tree of Life Church. Our prayer is that it will be a blessing to you and that you will find it helpful for life. So open up your heart to receive God's Word for you. The following podcast will be presented in two parts. The first part was recorded at our 9 a.m. service, and the second part at our 11 a.m. service. Thank you. Thanks. Well, come on now. <laughs> I, I guess I shouldn't say anything, I mean, applauding before I speak. You may not feel like ever again. But it's great to be here. And when I heard from my dear friend Donna Campbell, I was thrilled to hear that you were bringing the visiting wall here. Because it is. when I first heard about the Vietnam Memorial, And they had had all these entries and trying to figure, I thought, that's it, a wall, that's it. But there is something moving about it and seeing name after name of people who gave their lives. And uh, some have said, yeah, but you know, that really wasn't giving their lives for their country. Their country called and they answered. And that's what America has been about. Um, So Pastor Don had asked if I'd go through and and, you know, talk some about our heritage, because it was based on Judeo-Christian beliefs. I mean, that's the education, we're trying to redo and misteach. And uh, I I owed the Army four years from a scholarship I had at A&M. And uh, so I knew I was going to be going to the Army. I hope one day maybe I could go to law school if it worked out. But... um, Scared my dad to death, he couldn't stand lawyers, and he said, son, you're going to major in history? I said, I I love history. Mainly because Coach Parker in high school was such a great history teacher. And I have people that say, you know Louie, I just never really enjoyed history. Doesn't tell me anything about you, it tells me you never had a good history teacher. You had somebody that taught history by just giving you multiple choice dates and line these up. the great thing about history, it's the same. The Bible is the same way. It's not as much the dates as the stories and the lessons and what went wrong and what went right. That's that's what it's about. And if you ever had a good history teacher like I did, you learn to love it and learn to love it for the teachers, uh, for the, the teachers inspiring you through their stories. So anyway, I'm kind of a product of... Um, my growing up, just like many of us, but um, my mother was a eighth grade English teacher. She passed in 91, was a brilliant lady, but um, it's tough growing up with an English teacher mother, you know, and you probably would listen to me go, I can't believe you had a mother as an English teacher. But anyway, um, you know, I'd come home from football practice. Oh, I'm gonna go lay down. What are you gonna lay? I'm going to go lie down. You happy? Just give me a break. But anyway, um, but uh, I grew up in Mount Pleasant. It's up in far northeast Texas and uh, accepted Christ when I was six years old. Some thought that was too young, but uh, my parents wanted to make sure I knew what I was doing and took me to see our pastor one night at his house. And we spent a long time together in his study and, and, uh, (coughs) Excuse me. Get choked up. Pardon me. But um, there was no question. I knew what I was doing. But it was kind of a, a little stiffer than Tree of Life Church. You know what I mean? I mean, it was First Baptist Church of Mount Pleasant. My dad still goes to First Baptist Church of Mount Pleasant. But it it was even stiffer in my growing up years. I don't remember, but they told about guy that came in, visited one day at our church, and came right down to the front, pastor, and and as the preacher was preaching, he'd jump, Hallelujah! Oh, praise the Lord! Preach it! Oh, bring it! Oh, Jesus! And finally, one of the head deacon came down and said, "Sir, you got to keep your seat. Stay seated." and quit making noise. He said, I can't help it. I got the Holy Spirit in me. He said, I don't care what you got. You didn't get it here. So, <laughs> anyway. Uh, so, and, and I love all the instruments. I started learning to play guitar when I was eight years old. I just loved it. I play it once or twice a year now, no matter what. But, um, but I loved it. When I was in high school, on a Sunday night before Christmas, I was leaving the house and I had my guitar case and dad said, where are you going with that? And I said, well, I'm going to church. The minister of music asked me to bring the guitar. He said, not to our church. And I said, well, he wants the congregation to sing Silent Night just with one guitar. And he said, not at our church. And I said, dad, The first time Silent Night was ever sung in Germany, it was to guitar accompaniment, said, not at our church. (laughs) Anyway, mother intervened and I was able to take my guitar and we did Silent Night with a guitar. But anyway, I wanna touch on some of our history just to, to give you a better feeling about how God has moved in this country's life Great Awakening occurred in the 1700s, and David Barton. I, I, I've been deeply troubled because, uh, you know, we are in such trouble in this country the way we've turned away from God. And I, I mean, growing up, when Mother would, I was a little too little to read, she would read the stories about uh, the Old Testament, and I was always mystified. How could these people? have just been blessed so greatly, have seen miracles of God, and then turned away so quickly. I don't ask that anymore. It's happened in my lifetime. I've watched it. So I don't have to worry about, well, why didn't they? It is happening now. And and I know that there are a lot of teachers that think they're teaching what's appropriate because they've been mistaught. And and this is not anything new. Going clear back after Washington died in 1799, uh, in the early 1800s, there was a uh, a biographer that wanted to set out to prove George Washington was not a Christian. And so uh, the main piece of evidence he had, he wrote to his, Washington's niece and to a pastor of the church in Philadelphia where Washington went when... Uh, They were there for the government when it was meeting there in Philadelphia. And he asked one question. Did you ever see George Washington take communion at the church in Philadelphia? They both said no. And he said, see there, he was an honest man and he knew that only Christians should take the Lord's Supper, take communion. So he knew he wasn't a Christian and that's why he didn't take it. His niece was livid. How could you say that about this man? How could you read the things he wrote? Read the things that he said that others wrote that he said. How could you investigate his life and not know that Jesus Christ was his Lord? I mean, you look at his resignation from being the commander of the revolutionary military. The last part Of his resignation. He sent it to all 13 governors and he presented it to the uh, folks you see here. This is a painting in the Rotunda. And I think it's the most important scene depicted in the whole Capitol because it's a man six foot four doing what no one had ever done before or done in the history of the world. He led a country led the military in, in revolution. And then when he succeeded in winning the revolution as head of the military, he comes in with a piece of paper, giving all the power back, in essence saying, I've done what you ask, now I'm going home. Well, King George III couldn't believe it because he knew his history. A little bit crazy, but he knew his history. And he knew nobody had ever done that before. And they were saying, no, Washington's really serious. He's just going home. And he said, sarcastically, if Washington were to do that, he would be the greatest man alive. I think he was. Nobody's ever done that before or since. Uh, there was a Roman general named Cincinnatus that had won a great campaign and went home, but there, it was different. Washington could have been Caesar. In fact, there were a couple of times the military was so disgusted with the way things were going when the country was falling apart that they implored him to come and let us just make you the sovereign. You can take whatever title you want. You can pick your successor and we'll honor that. He wrote back and basically said, if you have any respect for me or this nation, you'll never mention such a notion to anyone again. So I don't know if you've ever tendered resignation or gotten a resignation from an employee, not many of them include a prayer, but the end of the prayer was that this nation would follow uh, the lead of the divine, and these are his words, the divine author of our blessed religion without whose without an humble uh, example of which we can never hope to be a a happy nation. And if you don't know who the divine author of our blessed religion, he didn't say religions, our blessed religion, he's talking about Jesus Christ. You need to know more, Pastor Don, a lot of others will meet with you, but it's obvious. Everybody knew what he was talking about, the divine author of our blessed religion. But uh, that early biographer tried to say he was shorter. And uh, in fact, there was a biography not long ago from a guy named Chernow, it was pretty good, but I was, uh, the librarian of the Library of Congress introduced a guy, the director of the Society of Cincinnati. said he has studied Washington every year of his entire life. That's his dedicated life's work. And I was talking to him after this program, and I said, "Do you read this latest biography? He said, yes, and I said, well, I was shocked. There were things in there that were clearly not accurate, like it said he was shorter than six foot two, And I thought it was completely undisputed that when he was dead in 1799 flat on a slab, he was six foot three and a half. And he said, it is undisputed. He said, it's what happens sometimes when a journalist tries to write history. But anyway, trying to appeal to other journalists. But that was Washington. And and let me mention uh, some years back, there were some of us in Congress that had gone to the Southern Philippines to meet with some special forces we have there trying to train the Philippines. To, there's radical Islam has been there for decades, training, bombers, and things. But uh, we stopped to refuel our plane on the way back at the Malvids Islands, directly south of India, in the Indian Ocean. I used to say Malvids, but they said Malvids, so I say Malvids now. But anyway, we were having lunch with some of their leaders, and they were talking about the fact that they were a new democracy. And the guy next to me said, You know, We're a new democracy, so we're always worried about a military coup. There's always rumors that the military's about to take over. And then he said this, he said, we never had a George Washington to set the proper example, so we're always worried about a military coup. I'm on the other side of the world, a little bitty island, and they know how important that was for an humble, God-fearing man to come in and say, I did what you asked, and now I'm going home. Extraordinary. The kind of humility that took. 1783 is when he did that. He did go home. The country was under the Articles of Confederation for the next four years. It was too loosely woven um, a lot of problems, states had conflicts of laws and there was no way to, to work those out. So the country's falling apart. So some of the leaders came to Washington at Mount Vernon and he had it said, you know, I've done what I'm asked and he couldn't wait to get back to Mount Vernon. Eight years of revolution, 1775 to 1783 when he resigned and his writing show, he could not wait to get back to Mount Vernon. He loved his home, loved to spend time. And uh, he sees them riding up. He opens his door and with a broken heart as they come up, he said, haven't I not yet done enough for my country? They persuaded him he hadn't. They needed him to come preside over a constitutional convention in Philadelphia. And it didn't go too well. A lot of fussing went on but let me, I'm sorry, let me drop back. 1783, okay, the revolution's won. There's a treaty of Paris that the British are supposed to enter with the United States to say, okay, we recognize you're independent. We recognize that. We will, we surrendered at Yorktown, and now we're agreeing that you have a right to be free and independent. That was a big deal. And I was taking uh, our pastor and his wife from, from Tyler through uh, the State Department tour and we were looking at this document through glass uh, and I went, wow, I didn't know this Treaty of Paris started that way. And as I thought about it, I thought, if you were preparing a treaty with the strongest, most powerful nation on earth, at that time, Great Britain, Strongest Navy, strongest army. And by the grace of God, a eight year conflict, you had defeated them, but you want them to sign an agree, a, a treaty, an agreement, agreeing that you have a right to be independent. You'd probably want them to sign under a name that would be so mortifying, so cr- create such anxiety and fear for you to sign and to lie under that name This is how they felt like it should start. The top line says this, in the name of the most holy and undivided Trinity. Now y'all were singing about that Holy Trinity just a few minutes ago. That's how our treaty with Great Britain started. You want to tell me that that was not on the minds of Americans in the founding days? They started their founding treaty with those words. So as Pastor Don was talking about, we were going through the Capitol at night. It's the best way to see the Capitol um, because we have about 15,000 go through during the day And uh, you get about 20, 30 minutes tops in the Capitol, so you don't get to see a whole lot. But uh, we had Statuary Hall. Uh, Might show a picture. This is the way it looks now. And to the left is where the speaker's chair. You can't see where the speaker's chair used to be. And there were semicircle rows facing the speaker's chair, and you see the arrow on the left, that's where John Quincy Adams sat when he was in the House of Representatives from 1831 to 1848. And uh, anyway, this was where the House of Representatives met from 1800 to about 1858. It also happens to have been the scene for about that same length of time of the largest Christian church in all of Washington, D.C. They met in that room Sunday after Sunday. Now, there was a fire that the British set in 1814, and so there was time it took to clean that up. But y'all know we had George Washington, after the, the Constitutional Convention, they come up with a new constitution, it gets ratified. He wants to go back home. No, no, we, we need you to be our first president. They elect him unanimously, four year term. And then he's ready to go home. No, 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 we need you to serve a second four year term. And he does. And then he's ready to go home and they say, No, we want you to serve a third term. Third one probably wouldn't have been unanimous because some were mad because he didn't go help France, but he knew we were not strong enough. And he said, no, it would never be good for a president to serve more than two four-year terms. It begins to look like a monarchy, and that's what we fought against. He finally got to go home, back to Mount Vernon. So uh, then after that, it was uh, John Adams had been elected in a contested race to be vice president twice. Then there was a contested race for president, and that's in uh, 1796, well, John Adams nearly beats Jefferson, and Burr had been in there as well. And uh, then he served one term, and Jefferson was elected to be his vice president. That's really not a good way to do vice president. Second highest vote is vice president. I mean, if you can imagine uh, Al Gore being George W. Bush's vice president, and work it on through, it's just not, it didn't work out well. Uh, but then Jefferson starts undermining him, and, uh, he beats him four years later. So John Adams doesn't get a second ter- turn, Goes uh, to Massachusetts. Jefferson is president for for two four year terms. Now Jefferson, as many of you know, he's the guy that coined the phrase separation of church and state. It is not in the Constitution. Never has been. Never, you know, it's just not. It was in a letter as some of you know to the Danbury Baptist where he was explaining why we should not have an official denomination. Uh, you know, because we don't want the government telling people exactly what church, what denomination they have to be part of, like the Church of England was a product of the king saying, this is the church we're going to have and no others. So, but he never, and he said there needed to be a wall of separation, but he never meant for that to be a two-way wall, it's just the government not tell people they are religious practices they could practice. Jefferson, every Sunday that he was in Washington DC while he was president, came to church in that room in Statuary Hall. Now back then there were no statues and they'd have to redo the desk and make it a good place for church, but it is where people flocked. In fact, there was a story that on one Sunday morning He was riding down Pennsylvania Avenue on a horse by himself before secret service. Has a big red Bible under his arm. And somebody said, hey, Mr. President, where are you going? He said, going to church at the Capitol. And he said, well, you don't believe everything they do. And he said, sir, I am the highest elected magistrate in this nation. It is imperative that I set the proper example. So he didn't have a problem having Christian church, as long as it was non-denominational, in the Capitol. That doesn't violate his sense of wall of separation, separation of church and state. In fact, he had this new group, relatively new, called the Marine Corps Band, come and play the hymns many Sundays. He ordered them, come play the, the Christian hymns for this church service. See what I mean? Not a real big problem with having church in the capital. And for, for most of the 1800s, it was the largest church until eventually other churches took enough root that it ceased to be. Now, you saw up there the statuary hall and the first arrow was amazing. John Quincy Adams, he had not been all that engaged in Christianity early in his life But he was so brilliant, some people used to think he may have been the smartest president ever, but he was so well-educated in the US, in England, in France, and uh, kind of like Lincoln, by the the time he got involved and and became president, he not only thought there might be a God, he knew there was a God. And Steve Mansfield has a great little book, uh, Lincoln's Struggle with God, from how he was in claimed to be an infidel in his early 20s. He didn't have a good father figure to identify with God. But anyway, by the time he was president, he knew there was a God, and knew that God worked and blessed America. So John Quincy Adams, he gets defeated. He doesn't get a second term in 1828. He did what nobody else had ever done before in this country, and that was after he was president, two years later, he ran for Congress. Nobody's ever been stupid enough to do that. Why would he do something like that? he have been president, now he's, he didn't even run for Senate, he ran for the House. He believed God was calling him to bring an end to slavery as William Wilberforce was, had almost completed doing in England at that time. Uh, Wilberforce, around 18, um, 1787 became a believer. He was in his 20s in Parliament And he believed God wanted to use him to bring an end to slavery. He fought for about 20 years, 1807. They made the slave trade illegal, but you could still have slaves. And he fought for 26 or so more years. It was 1833, three days before he died. Finally, Parliament outlawed slavery completely in in the British Empire. So they were ahead of us in really understanding freedom and and putting into practice what the Constitution said. So John Quincy Adams is gonna do for America what William Wilberforce was leading and, and done in Great Britain. So he is elected to the house. And everybody there knew that he believed he was supposed to help bring an end to slavery. He filed bill after bill after bill to end slavery, to free specific slaves. In fact, one year he made the rules committee so mad he filed so many of these these, uh, bills that they passed a new rule he couldn't keep bringing those bills. And then that made him mad, but he had to fight the rules so he could go back to filing the bills. But in 1848, he's sitting at his desk, he has a massive stroke they take him back in the speaker's office and put him on a couch, took care of him two days. He said something like, "I'm at peace," but everybody knew he hadn't done what he thought God called him to do, bringing into slavery. It was eighteen forty eight We're 13 years away from swearing in the president that we'll get it done." And I have heard a lot of people say, "Well, you know, Abraham Lincoln, he never got elected anything till president. Well, that's not quite accurate. eighteen forty six he was elected to be in Congress and from Illinois. By 1848, he was so unpopular, he knew he had no chance of being elected again. That, that was out. So he served two years in the House of Representatives. And although John Quincy Adams, some people might call him a... Uh, a porcupine Christian, you know, somebody's got a lot of good points, but you don't want to get real close to him. You know, he's just kind of a curmudgeon at times, kind of cranky. Uh, well, he took a liking to this homely, tall, dark-haired guy from Illinois, Abraham Lincoln, very young guy. And Lincoln was at the very back of the room. And if we could put back that same picture of Statuary Hall, you see the second arrow. He is in the back row, the semicircles, and... He, was, he overlapped about a year with, with uh, John Quincy Adams. And I've talked to Steve Mansfield about it. And I've talked to other historians. Lincoln made it very clear when he was president that the most important thing that he ever saw or heard during his two brief years in the House of Representatives was the powerful sermons that John Quincy Adams preached on the evils of slavery over and over. How can we expect God to keep blessing America when we're putting brothers and sisters in chains and bondage? If America is gonna be blessed by God going forward, we have to stop this. Well, he didn't get it done. But he changed the life, inspired the life, etched on the soul of the life of the man who would become president and get it done. Lincoln thought he was done with politics, and then when more slave states were allowed to come in, he couldn't rest, he got back involved, ran for the Senate, lost, and then elected president in 1860. We have a phenomenal history, and God has worked all the way throughout that time. Now, the Constitutional Convention, uh, we have a picture, you've seen the, uh, you've seen this painting. It hangs, it's a massive painting hanging in the Capitol. And I like this one because you get more of the feel of the true big man's man, six foot four George Washington. Well, so they had talked him into coming back, but for nearly five weeks, it was a disaster. Lots of yelling and it was all Washington could do to keep control and getting, getting out of hand. By the end of June, there in eighteen. 18- 1787, finally, after about five weeks, somebody wrote, President Washington looked so relieved when Dr. Franklin sought recognition. You see him down there in the front sitting. Now, at this point, he's 80 years old. And yes, he enjoyed company of numerous uh, ladies in France and England. He's 80 years old. He's got gout. He's got arthritis. He's overweight. He's still as witty and brilliant as ever, but he gets to his feet, probably had to have help. And we know exactly what he said. Madison is at, just to the right sitting of the guy in the red jacket. And by the way, I, I walked by one time, guy, one of the official guides had a bunch of little elementary school kids. And he said, now, this is... Uh, the Constitutional Convention, 1787. They're about to take a break for lunch, so they were gonna order pizza and they need to know how many want pepperoni and got guy up there in front taking down the order. And all these little kids are going, yeah, we've done that. Yeah, you know, I'm going, wow, I need to go on that guy's tour. But anyway, um, so Franklin stands up and he says, and, and the reason we know what he said, Madison took notes, but immediately afterwards, Franklin was asked for a copy of his speech. He sat down and wrote it in his own handwriting. We know exactly what he said. And he starts out and basically says, We've been going for nearly five weeks. We have more nose than eyes on virtually every vote. He says, in these exact words, how has it happened, sir, that we have not humbly thought of seeking the aid of the father of lights, to enlighten our thinking. He said, uh, in the beginning contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room. Our prayers, sir, were heard, and they were graciously answered. Then he goes on to talk about how they they all should remember specific prayers they prayed together in that room that were answered. Now, I was taught he was a deist, Someone who not only wasn't a Christian, didn't really believe in God, that there was some force, some deity, something created the universe. And if by chance that deity or thing or force still exists, it never interferes with the ways of man or nature. It set the course and everything's on its own. That's a deist. But if you look at his own words, he eventually says, I've lived so a long time, 80 years. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth. God governs in the affairs of men. It's not this. He says... If a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it possible an empire could rise without his aid? We've been assured, sir, in the sacred writing, that unless the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. He said, I firmly believe this. He said, I also believe that Without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in our political building no better than the builders of Babel. We will be confounded by our local partial interests and we ourselves shall become a byword down through the ages. And He went on to make a motion that they begin each day with prayer. Now, some think it passed. It didn't, and, and some secularists say, see, they didn't believe in prayer. Well, if you go look at the debate, the reason it didn't pass is because they said, yeah, when we had prayer here during the Continental Congress, we had a treasury, we had money, we were getting paid, and we could." When nobody trusted, especially the Quakers, one of us to do the prayer for everybody, but we could all agree on a minister. You know, Pastor Don, you know, could have been a good peacemaker there. Okay, I can come in and do a prayer for everybody. And, uh, you know, because Baptists, heck, we, we fuss. You know, you got three, two Baptists, you got three churches, you know, that kind of thing. But they could agree on one chaplain that they could hire to do the prayer every day. And they said, "Look, we're not getting paid. We have no treasury. We can't hire a chaplain, so we can't do that right now." So that failed. But then Randolph from Virginia said, "Okay, I've got a motion. Here we are, at the end of June. We're about to celebrate our nation's birthday, you know, Declaration of Independence. So I move that we recess. We're not accomplishing anything." I move, we recess and we reconvene at some local church all together. We worship God together, we pray together. And then after we do that, then we come back and pick this up. Now that one passed. They went to the reformed reformed Calvinistic church. Reverend William Rogers apparently did an incredible job because when they came back, people wrote there was a different spirit. And yeah, they had disagreements, but there was a different spirit And as Washington made clear, divine providence obviously visited them and we got the greatest founding document in history. But uh, anyway, the rotunda is a gorgeous, it's huge. It's right there in the middle. And of the Capitol, y'all have seen it. Some of you have been there. There are eight paintings around there. I've mentioned the one about Washington, but uh, just, Quickly, you know, some of the other paintings there, you've got Columbus. And Columbus, he had always had a cross. Well, now that's the signing of Declaration of Independence. This is Columbus, and there's a cross back there behind his head, because he always had somebody bring a cross. He proclaimed land for King and Queen and his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He made very clear that it was the Holy Spirit that led him to believe he could cross the ocean when nobody else thought he could. Uh, But then you go over from there and you have uh, DeSoto finding the Mississippi River and uh, the Indians pretty well figured out it was there but it was a huge deal to Europeans to see that much fresh water flowing that fast, they couldn't believe it. So they did what they did back then to commemorate an important finding. Uh, Look down, they dig in a hole to plant a cross to commemorate this important finding. Because crosses, they knew the importance of the cross. And then you've got Pocahontas being um, baptized, although some of the official tour guides now, because you don't want to get anything uh, Christian, they say this is the marriage of, Bap- uh, of Pocahontas. Now, it was a baptism, and it wasn't the Baptist Duncan. This is kind of the little dabble, do you. And uh, anyway... Uh, but this was the baptism of Pocahontas, this beautiful Indian queen uh, who was becoming a Christian. That was a huge deal back then. And then we also, one of the other most prominent paintings of those eight, it's the prayer meeting the pilgrims had before they crossed, uh, well, actually, this is in Holland. So they went from there to England, and then from England, they came across the United States. And a lot of folks don't realize they were on two ships. The Speedwell was huge, small Mayflower, and the Speedwell started taking on water while they were in England. So they had to, some say, kind of like Gideon's army. They had to get down to the smallest, hardiest group. But if you zoom in on the Bible, there, this is the page it's open to: New Testament of Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I keep thinking somebody's going to come in and say you can't have that in our capital, but. Um, want to jump down to Lincoln's second inaugural. This is inscribed on the inside of the Lincoln Memorial. And y'all familiar with the Lincoln Memorial? Inside the North Wall, that's what it looks like. And partway through his speech, he's, he's talking about the North and South. And he's really wrestling with how can a good God allow this these kind of terrible things to happen? And he says, talking about north and south, both read the same Bible, both pray to the same God. Each invokes his aid against the other. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been fully answered. The Almighty has his own purposes. And then he quotes scripture. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it needs be that offenses come, but woe to the man by whom the offense cometh, unquote. He said, fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by basically the slaves, 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk and every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. As was said 3,000 years ago, still must be said today, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. That's the President of the United States. Well, Jefferson, and it's inscribed in the Jefferson Memorial, said, God who gave us life gave us liberty. Can the liberties of a nation be secure when we have moved, removed a conviction that these liberties are the gift of God? And I just wanna finish with a story of Ross McGinnis, because this is Memorial Day weekend. We remember those that paid, with, as Lincoln called it, The last full measure of devotion. Ross McGinnis grew up in Knox, uh, um, Pennsylvania. He was not from my district, but I went to his funeral at Arlington National Cemetery. And when he graduated high school, he went into the army. He loved it. He had found his niche. He was a good shot. They made him a machine gunner on a uh, Humvee. He. He smiles in all his pictures going through BASIC. I don't know about you guys that were men and women that were in the military, but I don't think I ever smiled going through BASIC, and I sure wouldn't have smiled if I'd been in Iraq 120 degrees. He's smiling. His other buddies are beat down. His platoon leader said he was really the, the life of the, of the uh, platoon. So they're going through a town in Iraq, and a, a grenade was propelled down into the, the hold of the Humvee where there were four soldiers. He was the only one elevated that could have gotten out. His platoon ser, uh, sergeant said he yelled grenade and he started to jump out and he looked down in the hold and saw they were all four just crunching in the corner and he knew they were all gonna die. Instead of jumping out and saving himself, young Ross, 19 at the time, jumps down on the grenade, takes the full force and saves four lives. I went because two of those people were my constituents. One was his platoon sergeant from Longview, and then another private BFC who was uh, uh, Sergeant Lawson from, I mean, Private Lawson from Tyler. But there at the graveside, the chaplain did a nice job. Taps still gets me. 21-gun salute, but when it was over, everybody stood to leave. Three of the four he had saved were able to get back for his funeral from Iraq. And the platoon sergeant was first up and knelt before his remains, put his hand on his remains, and knelt in prayer. He was followed by the two others and did the same thing. And I realized that's what we're supposed to do Sergeant said, they thanked Ross for saving their lives and they thanked God for sending Ross. That's what Memorial Day is about. We thank those who served. We thank God for sending those who would serve. Jesus said, greater love is no man than this. The man laid down his life for his friends. He knew because that's what he did and he was love, and he is love. And I'm telling you, our country's in trouble. You surely know that. We have turned, not only turning away from God, we are abusing the very things that are from the owner's manual that God gave us. And if you think, well, you know, I didn't elect this president or that president, look at Hosea 8, 4, because, and this is, uh, I like this living translation God's telling Hosea why he's about to come down on the children of Israel. And he says, they have chosen leaders who are not my choice. You think we're not held accountable for who we choose, whether you elect them or not? Doesn't matter what party you're in. We're accountable. And we can lose this country. There's nothing you can do better for your country than get your own self right with the Lord. Things will take care of themselves. So, Pastor Don, if you would come. This concludes the first part of our podcast. Please stand by for part two. Uh. Thank (laughs) you. Thank you. Um, Please be seated. (laughs) Yeah. Well, well, thank you, Pastor Don, but uh, y'all are so gracious, but I can't help but uh, think of the words of Stephen Curtis Chapman, who'd become a friend, who actually wrote my heart when he wrote, if the truth were known and a light were shown on every hidden part of my soul, most would turn away, shake their heads, and say, he's still got such a long way to go. If <laughs> If the truth you were known, you'd see that the only good in me is Jesus. And uh, so anyway, thank you for the warm welcome. And I thank you, Pastor Don, for putting your reputation on the line, for having me here. And, uh, you know, Donna, uh, Senator Campbell, we're both considered a bit crazy, you know, Be crazy fools and um been called all kinds of names. Both of us have, I know. When you stand up for what you know to be true. But I often think of uh, Michael Card's song. He wrote El Shaddai and a bunch of big songs. But I love the one that, uh, that it seems I've imagined him, talking about Jesus all of my life, of the, as the wisest of all of mankind. But if God's holy wisdom were foolish to man, he must have seemed out of his mind. <laughs> anyway, the course, uh, we in our foolishness thought we were wise. He played the fool and he opened our eyes. When we in our weakness believed we were strong, he became helpless to show we were wrong. So we follow God's own fool. For only the foolish can tell to be beyond believable Come be a fool as well. So it's an honor to be a fool. And uh, all the other things that I've been called, uh, I always did uh, very well on testing. It may have been because I had a mother who was an English teacher in eighth grade. Actually, she's been my teacher all my life. But uh, well, until she passed in 91. But I grew up in Mount Pleasant. Um, after I finished the four years I owed the army, Kathy and I, she had been from Dallas and I was from Mount Pleasant and I lose my Christian witness a lot of times in Dallas traffic and uh, sometimes Austin too, but anyway. Uh, but anyway, Tyler just had always I said, I just feel good about it. We prayed about it, went and visited uh, on leave from the four years I was in the army because I had a scholarship at a Anyway, it just felt right. We both had uh, offers there, been there ever since. But um, in Mount Pleasant, I accepted Christ when I was six years old. Some were concerned I might be too young, but uh, after a long conversation with my pastor, and yeah, I cried uh, because it just still was amazing, you know, that someone, God's only son, would give his life for me. I never did anything really horrible, but I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But uh, in fact, I've prayed for the simplicity of faith. You know, sometimes it gets all burdened down with all kinds of strange philosophical, theological things when faith in its truest form is so pure. It's just complete faith. But it was First Baptist Church of Mount Pleasant and they told about when I was little there was a a visitor came in, made his way to the front row and uh, as a preacher was preaching he was jumping up, hallelujah, praise the Lord, oh bring it pastor, just on and on. Finally uh, uh, Dick came down and said, sir you got to keep your seat, keep your mouth shut. He said, I can't help it, I got the Holy Spirit in me. He said, I don't care what you got you didn't get it here. So anyway, so I'm thrilled to be here at Tree of Life where if you got the Holy Spirit, you may have gotten it here. You know? Isn't that great? And, uh, you know, no nation lasts forever. It just doesn't. Until Jesus returns, there will be no nation lasts forever. They come and go. Leaders come and go. But God has blessed America beyond anything anybody could have ever dreamed, including the founders. He just has. He's used us. I don't, you know, Jesus said, You're going to suffer for my sake. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up in elementary school, if you weren't a Christian, you were really kind of embarrassed to, to say that. I mean, you don't suffer for Christ's sake in an environment like that. So, for whatever reason, God gave this country here where for most of our nation's history, you didn't suffer for Christ's sake. You were blessed for Christ's sake in so many ways. And, and we were able to get the Bible translated into nearly every language around the world almost. And, and we've sent missionaries all over the world to bring the gospel, the good news all over the world, just, just like Jesus said to do. And that this country has been used so much, but I was told by uh, one of the uh, ministers at Southern Baptist Convention headquarters that uh, somewhere probably in the late 90s, for the first time, we had more missionaries coming into America than we did going out. Things have changed. You can suffer for Christ's sake now in this country. People are suffering for Christ's sake now. And I, I was in the Supreme Court when... Uh, oral argument was going on in the case involving, involving the little sisters of the poor. And this didn't make the news, but it sure made an impression because they kept making the distinction. Well, these nuns totally dedicated their life to Christ and helping others. And it's against their religious beliefs to help pay for abortion. And, and, uh, anyway, that, um, so that was a big issue. They're not actually a church. They're a charity, but they're not technically a church. But toward the end of the argument, one of the justices asked basically the administration's lawyer, you know, I get the impression that you even believe the government has the right to tell a church what they can believe and what they can practice. And he had indicated, yes, they did. I mean, folks, we're headed for some tough times if the government can tell the church what beliefs you can practice and what you can't, and I know the pastor's got to take off quickly after this service for israel it's funny God's working around the world, and i've seen him be at work in Israel. he really is, and uh, I've been fortunate as a member of Congress to meet with Prime Minister Netanyahu a number of times and a couple of years ago, I went with Michelle Bachman and Steve King and Robert Pittinger. And the four of us sat down with Netanyahu one evening about seven. He had to speak to his political party at 8.30 that night. They were mad at him. And his sister said, you can't keep him long. He's got to write his speech. He hadn't even written his speech. And so in our private conversation there in the real capital of Israel, Jerusalem, um, I said, look, I don't know if you remember, but a few years ago, I told you two things, and it's on my heart, I got to tell you again. Uh, Number one, there has never been a time in Israel's history when Israel gave away land trying to buy peace that ultimately that land wasn't used as a staging area from which to attack it. He said, I'm using that in my speech tonight. I said, well, it's true. It's true. And second, I think, I'm not a prophet, I know a lot of history, I know the Bible, I think you've got a chance to be one of Israel's great leaders. And Michelle said, Louie, he is one of Israel's great leaders. I said, no, 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 I'm talking all-time greats. I'm talking, going back to David, to Solomon, Josiah, Hezekiah for most of his time. Uh, you know up through Ben-Gurion but the greatest leaders of Israel besides being Jewish had one thing in common they all had called upon the nation of Israel to honor the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob and that just hasn't happened in so very long and he said well I don't know if you're aware but since you told me that I started a Bible study in my home Well, and I I said I did hear that I read that I, I can't tell you how thrilled I was um and I'm sure it's the Torah or the Tanakh, but the Old Testament. And, and he said, okay, well, here's something you don't know. And, and his family was not spiritual, uh, as I understand it. And, uh, you know, they were Jewish, but he has gotten more involved in Scripture. And he said, okay, here's something you don't know. Since you said that, my favorite hour every week is when my son, who has won contests on... Bible drills and stuff. My son comes over. We spend an hour once a week reading scripture and talking about it. He said, my favorite hour of the week. I'm telling you, God's moving. I said, look, there are going to be some crises in the days ahead, and I am really afraid that our country may help create those crises for you. I pray not, but it there are going to be some, and that will be a great time for you to do what most of our presidents have done in crises, and that is say, I'm making a proclamation. And I said, I know you've got the Libneys and the secularists that are always yapping at you, but, but just say, this is for those who believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're, you're calling on the nation to have a day of prayer and fasting for God to intervene and help. And I said, I swear to you, God will hear that prayer. God will answer that prayer. And people, even your biggest detractors, will see that God's answered that prayer. And I just hope and pray that when those crises arise, you'll do that. God's working in Israel. But our problem is, we're here in America, which is a great thing, a blessed thing, but we don't know our history. And so, just very quickly, I'm going to try to run through just just a few of the things. I had I can go on, uh, Pastor. The longest tour I've given was four hours, and it was like one or two in the morning. But I kept saying, "Hadn't y'all had enough?" No, no, we love these stories. With anyway, so uh, I'm going to try to cut it to three hours for y'all. But um, yeah, <laughs> but. Uh, Washington, all six foot four of him. There was a recent biography said shorter than six two. There's no question. The, the man that knows more about Washington than any man alive in the world said, I said, you know, that last biography said he was shorter than six two. Yeah, I got a lot wrong in there. But anyway, uh, it was undisputed when he was flat on a slab in 1799 when he had died, he was six foot three and a half. And back then, I mean, Madison was five foot four, our shortest president, six foot four was huge. And he was a man's man. And I love the, the pictures that depict him as the kind of man's man he really was. Incredible. And God prepared him for such a time as he was there. But when he resigned, from the military and and I think it's the most important scene depicted in our capital is Washington with his hand outstretched and that's his resignation, 1783. He's doing there what nobody had ever done before. He led a military in revolution, won the revolution and he had all power, he could make contracts, they passed a bill giving him all this power. He's given it back, in effect, saying, I've done everything you ask. Here's all the power back. I'm going home. And that's what our military has done ever since then. They're still doing it today. King George knew that it had never happened. And when they told him, no, Washington, he won the revolution, but he's going home. He's not going to be part of the government. He, he didn't believe it because he knew nobody had ever done that. He, and he sarcastically said these words, If Washington were to do that, he'd be the greatest man alive. I think he was. And there have been biographies written trying to say that he was not a Christian. You want to find the truth? There's a book about that thick that a man who's now pastor emeritus at Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. Has a seminary there, but uh, he wrote a book, George Washington's Sacred Fire. It's fantastic, and I would commend it to you. He goes through, and by the time you finish, you know Washington was a believer. But uh, anyway, he um, he resigns. He goes home, but they still needed Great Britain to sign a treaty where they swore that they understood the United States was separate and independent, its own country. They were getting the most powerful country in the world, the biggest army, best trained, the biggest, most powerful navy, and they're saying this little group of 13 states, we want you to sign agreement saying you recognize we're on our own. And when I saw an original of the Treaty of Paris, 1783, I was showing our pastor, my wife was with me, our pastor and his wife, and there was the Treaty of Paris, and I'd never noticed this, but I couldn't believe the biggest, boldest letters were right at the first, and as I contemplated, I thought, well, it makes sense. If you want the most powerful country in the world to sign saying you're independent, they won't mess with you, you want them to swear to that under the most the name that would evoke more fear to violate than any other you could think of, and that's why I can show you, this is the way the Treaty of Paris starts. In the name of the most holy and undivided trinity. You were seeing about the trinity a while ago. They put it to start the document that recognized America, and they swore. Both countries in the name of the most holy and undivided trinity. You think God wasn't in our founding? I mean, I, I still, I, between time when I was a district judge and the court of appeals, I read the, reread the Constitution for the umpteenth time, and I was struck the way it was dated. It was dated, you know, in, in the year of our Lord, 1,700 seven hundred. And eighty-seven, and I thought, wow. So I started dating my correspondence that, and I've continued to do that in Congress. Right after I got there, my chief of staff came and said, uh, "The head of franking—that's our official postage—said, if you're going to keep dating your correspondence in the year of our Lord, like 2016, whatever month and day, you're going to have to pay for that out of your own pocket. You can't use government funding." to pay for a letter that starts in the year of our Lord. And I said, you tell the head of Franking that if he wants to go to court try to establish that by my dating my correspondence the way the Constitution's dated, that that's unconstitutional, have at it. Never heard another word. But. So, We have Statuary Hall as it's called now. Originally when the house met there, there were no statues. Now they're surrounding the house floor. When the house met in there, the speaker's chair was to the left, and it was up high, and then all of the the desks were in rows facing the speaker's chair. But every Sunday from 1800 on, there was a fire in 1814, and that's, that all worked out as a miracle too, but just don't have time to go into all the miracles in our founding. But anyway, um, so that's the way it looked. You just have to imagine rows and rows, semicircle deaths. But you see the arrow on the left, Adams, that's John Quincy Adams, elected president in 1824. He was defeated by Andrew Jackson in 1828. And then he did something crazy two years later. Nobody's ever done this in this country before. After he was president, he ran for Congress. He said he was prouder of being elected to Congress than he was getting elected to president because what it meant, after he was president, his neighbors still liked him, you know? Well, you don't find many presidents, really, that go back to their original hometown. I mean, just not very often. And by the way, I, I never mentioned to you, Pastor, New Braunfels has always had a special place in my heart because uh, you know, supposedly I was a big shot in high school in Mount Pleasant. I was boy of the year for our town and I got to Texas A&M and I always wondered what kind of guy wins boy of the year for the whole state, not just his hometown? Well, it was Steve Eberhard from New Braunfels and I met him uh, at A&M and we became fast friends. He was a late night guy like I was He said he would help me get elected uh, class president and then I could help him get elected student body president and he did and he made a real difference. So I was our class president the last three years. But by the time end of our junior year rolled around, he was so popular, he didn't need my help. He didn't need anybody's. He was brilliant, he was a believer and uh, he was all district football track. He was just an incredible athlete, brilliant intellect. I went to Baylor Law. He went to Harvard Law. Uh, he had a 90-day active duty commitment. I had four years, but uh, he was 28 when he. nobody knew he had a heart defect, and he didn't wake up one morning. But uh, I used to go, every time I was anywhere near the area, I'd go visit his mom. She ended up out north of town at a nursing home out there, and they were always sweet. But anyway, uh, Steve... Comes, I thought he'd be president someday. I thought someday I will help Steve Eberhard be president because this nation needs him, but uh, call it, God called him home sooner. but it it's just evokes a lot of emotion anytime um, I think about the effect New Bonville's own had on me, and uh, so I still carry part of Steve with me all the time. All right, I didn't mention that in the first service, uh, but uh, so back to Adams. He believed God called him to bring an end to slavery in America, the way William Wilberforce, with whom he'd corresponded in England, was doing. Wilberforce was in parliament in his 20s. He uh, became a believer in 1787, fought for 20 years, every year, year after year, to end slavery. 20 years later, 1807, they passed a bill that ended the slave trade, but it did not end slavery. And so, um, he fought for twenty eight I'm sorry, twenty-six more years, eighteen thirty-three. Three days before he died, England's English Parliament outlawed slavery completely in all of the British Empire. Well, Adams thinks God's calling him to do that here. That's his calling. That's why he ran. Over and over, he filed bills to free slaves to end slavery altogether, over and over. And every time he got recognized on one of his bills, he would stand up at his desk, which was, his desk was where that arrow was pointing there on the left, and preach these hellfire sermons about how can God keep blessing America when we're putting our brothers and sisters in chains and bondage, and, and, and just really preaching it but he didn't seem to do any good. He couldn't get a bill passed. And he was there till 1848, he had a massive stroke and they took him back, put him on a couch, took care of him two days. He said something like, I'm at peace. But everybody knew he hadn't done what he thought God called him to do and that was in slavery. It's 1848. President won't even be sworn in that does that for 13 more years and it'll be 17 more years before he actually is able to make That more of a reality, but he was faithful. And uh, uh, in 1846, though, a tall, homely-looking guy, uh, he later grew a beard, but uh, he had a kind of high, unpleasant voice to listen to. And I I love Bill O'Reilly's been great to me, but. His book, Killing Lincoln, he says two places, he was a great speaker. No, he was a great speech writer, but he was not a great speaker. He, he had that unpleasant voice like Daniel Day-Lewis depicted in the movie, Lincoln. And, uh, and then he walked funny, didn't swing his arms, just a strange guy. But Adams took a liking to him, kind of took him under his wing, mentored him. And, and when Adams died, Lincoln was one of his honorary pallbearers. And anyway, by 1848, Lincoln had no chance of being reelected. And he goes back to Illinois, he thinks he's done with politics. And then there were more slave states that came in and he couldn't stand it. He eventually got back involved in politics and uh, ran for Senate, lost to Stephen Douglas, and then uh, ran for president in 1860. So you saw in that diagram at the very back of the room, the back row, if you can picture it back in the back, was Abraham Lincoln, kind of directly behind Adams, but at the very back row. After he was president, I had Steve Mansfield, the author, historian, confirm and others have come in that after Lincoln was president, he made clear the most important thing that happened to him in his whole two brief years in Congress was the powerful sermons John Quincy Adams preached on the evils of slavery. He knew it was wrong, but Adams etched it on his soul and he could not rest as long as slavery existed in America. John Quincy Adams didn't get it done, but he was faithful and he materially affected the guy that did get it done. Our job is not the results, you've heard it over and over. Our job is to be faithful in what we're called to do, and God will take care of the results from there. You know, so that room was where the largest church in Washington, D.C., was for over half of the 1800s. Thomas Jefferson, the guy that coined the phrase separation of church and state, there has to be a wall of separation. It was not in the Constitution. A lot of people think it is. It was in a letter he wrote to the Danbury Baptists explaining why we're not going to have an official denomination. But this president that coined those two phrases when he was president, went to church in the Capitol every Sunday that he was in Washington, D.C. And uh, he would normally ride his horse down Pennsylvania before the Secret Service. And uh, he would go to church and he also ordered this new group called the Marine Corps Band to come play the hymns. They did the accompaniment for the hymns much of the time. That didn't offend his sense of separation of church and state because he knew the key was it was not, they needed the church to interfere in government, it's just that government was never to interfere with the church and with our religious beliefs. That's the way it's supposed to be. And uh, at the Constitutional Convention, I love the way Washington's depicted because he was a tall guy. And uh, we have—you've seen this painting; it's massive it, there in the Capitol. Ben Franklin's there in the front. Uh, Madison is in a blue coat, just to the right of the guy in a red coat. And and Franklin's eighty years old. And yes, he enjoyed ladies. Company in Europe and in England and all, but he's eighty. He's got arthritis. He's got gout. He's overweight. He has trouble getting up and down. Usually has to have help. They've been going for nearly five weeks in the, the 1787 in June, and, and toward the end of June, he finally stands up. It just Washington was doing everything he could control things, and Franklin stands up. And somebody wrote that. Uh, president washington appeared so relieved when dr franklin sought recognition so franklin probably had to have help standing up he's a couple years away from meeting his maker and i was taught he was a deist you know didn't really believe in god if whatever created the universe still around it doesn't try to interfere it just is out there look at his own words we know what he said because afterwards. He was asked for a copy of his speech. He wrote it all down in his own handwriting, word for word. We know what he said. He starts out saying, we've been going for nearly five uh, weeks. We have more nose than eyes on virtually every vote. How has it happened, sir, he said, that we have not once thought of humbly applying to the Father of Lights to illuminate our understanding. In the beginning contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room. Our prayers, sir, were heard and they were graciously answered. That's not a deist. And he goes on and talks about specific prayers that they should all remember. They prayed and that were answered. And he says these exact words. And he says, I've lived, sir, a long time. Yeah, it's been 80 years. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth. God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it possible an empire could rise without his aid? We've been assured, sir, in the sacred writing, that unless the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. He said, I firmly believe this. I also firmly believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in our political building no better than the builders of Babel. We'll be confounded by our local partial interests and we ourselves shall become a byword down through the ages. You know, as Adam wrote you know, we've got within our grasp what people have only dreamed of, the chance to govern ourselves. And if we can get this right, it basically was what he was saying, that other nations will want to follow our example. And they knew that. They were so brilliant and well-read, but they knew they had to have the blessing of God or it would never work. And that's exactly what they got. Well, Okay, that motion didn't pass because they didn't have a treasury. And yes, every, every time, every day in the Continental Congress, they had prayer. They started with prayer every day like we do now. And, uh, and by the way, there's a lawsuit that was filed on the National Day of Prayer, first Thursday in May, because um, a congressman from Wisconsin had a constituent who's head of the Freedom From Religion which is completely antagonistic to our constitution. Nobody's free from religion. That was not a, a freedom. But anyway, they, he asked as an atheist to lead a, a um, prayer and the chaplain refused. He said, no, this is very specific. It has to be an invocation. It's part of the house rules. It has to be an invocation invoking God's blessing. And if you don't believe in God, then you can't do an invocation. So they've sued. That suit's pending now. Uh, we're under attack like never before. Well, but the founders knew the importance. And that Franklin's motion failed because they didn't have money to hire a chaplain and nobody trusted everybody didn't trust one person in there to do a prayer that would be fair to everybody. Probably had too many Baptists like me. No, you know. but anyway, um, so they said, we got no money, we can't hire a chaplain. And so that failed. And then Randolph from Virginia said, okay, here we are at the end of June. We're about to celebrate our nation's birthday, Declaration of Independence. I move, we recess, we reconvene at a church and worship God together, pray together, and then come back and try that That passed. They went to the Reformed Calvinistic Church in Philadelphia, Reverend William Rogers presiding. And apparently he did a humdinger of a sermon and prayer and you can find one of his prayers online still. And when they came back, it was written that there was a new spirit. Yeah, they had differences of agreement, but there was a new spirit. And out of it came the greatest founding document of any nation in our history. Uh, But if you go to the rotunda, the middle room there in the Capitol, uh, some of you have been there, you've seen pictures of it, massive round, the big dome at the top. There are eight big mural, uh, eight big paintings there. And uh, one of them is the signing of the Declaration of Independence. It's the one depicted right back there. You've seen that before. And, you know, not only were most all of those guys' Christians. Over a third of them, pastor, they were ordained Christian ministers. They are the ones that got this place founded. And who was it was behind the abolitionist movement? The churches, the Christian churches knew we shouldn't be treating people like this. Who was it that was behind the movement in the 1900s to bring about civil rights so the constitution meant what it said? Some ordained Christian minister named Martin Luther King Jr., I mean, Jesus and the church has been behind the best things that have happened to this country. And now... Now you can suffer for Christ's sake. Well, most of the pictures, and I'm gonna skip them because of time, but they have to do with the Lord's impact on our nation. But uh, in the house chamber... Uh, and this is picture 13 and 14 y'all seen the house of representatives and uh, you know that's the way it looks but right above the flag etched in the marble above in the next photograph you see what it says it's our national motto in God we trust and I'd pushed for nearly a year to get Uh, the speaker to invite Prime Minister Netanyahu and he was invited and came in May of 2011 and he knew I'd been pushing for a long time to get him invited so that we could show the world despite what was happening, the snubbing down at the other end of, of Pennsylvania Avenue in Congress, both sides of the aisle would stand up and support Israel and give that word picture to the world that look, both sides of the aisle, we stand with Israel. And it was maybe the best speech I've heard. But as he shook my hand, I said, and he's looking at me and the front is to my right. And I said, Prime Minister, just remember the whole time you're speaking, our national motto will be right above your head. And he started to look and then he didn't have to. And he looked me in the eye and he said, I had already thought of that. And God we trust is above his head. God's working in his life. But anyway... Uh, That's our national motto. Yes, it was adopted around 1952, but it's the only national motto we've ever had. But I want to go to the Lincoln Memorial. Y'all have seen it. Many of you have been there. On the inside north wall is the entire transcript, three big columns there, of his second inaugural speech, given about a month before he was assassinated. And I keep thinking some of these goofy groups are gonna come in there and even though it's part of our history, they're gonna say, you can't have that in a speech. You know, It's gotta be scratched out. It's part of our history. And he says this, he's talking about North and South. He said, both read the same Bible. A president said that. Both read the same Bible, pray to the same God. Each invokes his aid against the other. The prayers of both could not be answered. The prayers of neither have been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. Then he quotes scripture, woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offensive come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Then he goes on, finally do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the slaves 250 years of unrequited toil be sunk and every drop of blood drawn by the lash shall be paid by another drawn by the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, must also be said... The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. That's the President of the United States explaining as he's obviously wrestled with this question. And then you go to the Jefferson Memorial. We're told he didn't really believe much anything Christians do. But the quote is inscribed inside the wall, inside on the wall. God who gave us life gave us liberty. Can these liberties of a nation be secure when we've removed a conviction that these liberties are the gift of God. Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect God is just and his justice cannot sleep forever. Boy, it ought to strike a nerve. You ought to pray about those words till you get a chill. And I have, there's so many Christians in Congress. They say, Louis, we don't have to worry, God's in control. I go, yeah, God was in control when the children of Israel said, we want a king. And he said, no, you don't. It's not going to work out well. Oh, yes, we do. We want a king. I'm telling you, you're not going to like the way it played out. He tried to explain through the prophet. And they said, no, they want a king. He was in control, but he let them have what they wanted to their detriment. He was in control when Israel, after a couple hundred years or so, split to the northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. Jerusalem was in Judah. And he was in control in in the northern kingdom of Israel. It was uh, 732 BC. The Assyrians, they're considered the fathers of terrorism, basically where Iraq is now. The Assyrians, really weird. They came in and attacked and it looked like they could have destroyed Israel, but they just attacked, knocked down walls and buildings, killed some people, uprooted, cut down trees. And then went back to Assyria. Weird, but God explains to Isaiah and Jonathan Cahn in The Harbinger explains, and he draws parallels that are very scary. And I commend that book. It's real short, The Harbinger. But he's comparing that to being our 9-11 because God's saying to Isaiah there in seven. 732, I've given them a warning. And instead of coming back to me, they're saying, We're going to fix all this, and they don't even mention my name. They say, We're going to rebuild it even better than it was. They don't mention me. I'd get, let that happen as a warning to, to return to me, and they didn't. Ten years later, he let the Assyrians pull back his hand of protection, let the Assyrians take him out. He was in control, but he let them have the natural consequences of turning from God. Now, the southern kingdom of Judah, where Jerusalem was, uh, they had a warning, and God makes that clear. That was in 605 B.C. Babylonians came in and attacked, and then they go home. And God made clear that was a warning. Now, he let them have nearly 20 years before he pulled back his hand. The Babylonians come in and... The Israelites' freedom is gone. The children of Israel taken into captivity. Their freedom was gone. Now, it's possible God loves America more than he loved Jerusalem. I wouldn't bet the farm on it, but it's possible. But he gave Jerusalem 19 to 20 years after their warning. And if Jonathan Cahn is right that we got our warning on 9-11. I don't know about here at Tree of Life, Pastor, but all the churches I saw for 90 days were packed after 9-11. Oh, God, protect us. We don't know when the next hits coming. After about 90 days, people we going, never mind, God, we're good. We thought we were worried, but no, not a problem. We got to turn back to God. Let me, uh, one final... The Washington Monument, y'all have seen it. Tallest structure in Washington. Took about a hundred or so years to finally get it finished. And over a hundred years ago, they put a capstone up there on the very top. They had scaffolding, went up the side. And uh, I heard somebody say recently it was a copper capstone. It's actually a new metal, something maybe you've heard of it called aluminum, yeah. (laughs) So that was a big deal back then though. Aluminum in a a pyramid shape and there's writing on all four sides of the pyramid capstone on top of that. And on the side facing the Capitol, which is to the right, the White House is directly up above that to the north of Washington Monument. But to the east is the Capitol and facing the Capitol, they have two Latin words, Laus Deo. That's what they wanted up there, Lousdale, meaning praise be to God because they knew that should always be the tallest point in our nation's capital. And when the first rays of God's sun illuminated the first thing in our nation's capital, it would first be the words illuminated, praise be to God, and then the capitals illuminated. People don't know this. We have such an incredible history and if you think we're safe because you've been active in politics and you've always worked for the best candidate, well, I would send you to Hosea 8.4. God's telling Hosea why he's coming down on the children of Israel. And I like the uh, loose translation that says, because they have chosen leaders who were not my choice. And it doesn't matter whether you like or dislike the present president or the prior president, or the president for them, Saying is true, it's not in the Bible, democracy ensures a people are governed no better than they deserve. And I'm here to tell you that whatever president we have at a given point, at the point he is elected or she in the future, that's who this country deserved at that moment. You better be praying and working because you have a responsibility here. And this is Memorial Day weekend and and where we commemorate the sacrifice of those who have heard the call of the country. We've got the Vietnam wall out there, over 58,000 precious American lives were given for the freedom of others. And it was not allowed to end in a good way. And it was such a difficult time for this country, the way it was handled and mishandled and mishandled from start to finish. But it doesn't detract from those precious Americans that gave all they had when their nation called. They didn't give their, their lives for some wishy-washy government in Washington. They just believed all people were created equally. And this is a nation, I can't find other nations that have ever, ever done this, was willing to give our greatest treasure, American blood, for the freedom of others. Jesus said, greater love is no one than this. That's the greatest love. They lay down their lives for others. But folks, yeah, God's in control. But uh, there's a pastor up in Denton that said just because God's in control doesn't mean he wants us to lean on our shovel and pray for a hole. You know? (laughs) There are things you can do. Ross McGinnis I'm finished with this, Uh, sorry I'm a little long, I have trouble stopping when I talk about our history, but Ross McGinnis, 18 years old, finished high school in uh, Knox, Pennsylvania. I went to his funeral, uh, even though he wasn't from from my district, but it was at Arlington National Cemetery and I got to know his mother and father, Tom and Romaine. And uh, anyway, He'd gotten in some trouble his senior year, but he was allowed to graduate. He he had already signed up to join the Army. He found his niche. He loved it. He smiled all the way through basic. I couldn't believe seeing pictures of him in basic. Any of y'all that have been in the military, you may be like me. I never smiled in basic. My girlfriend dumped me. It was a terrible time. It was (laughs) Horrible, horrible, but he's smiling in his pictures. He's over in Iraq, 120 degrees. He's smiling His other guys. His platoon sergeant said he was the life of our platoon. He was just such an uplifting guy. So he's a machine gunner on their Humvee. They're going through a town in Iraq. Somebody propels a grenade that goes down into the hold of the Humvee where there were four soldiers. He, he is the only one elevated that could have gotten out because half his body is out already and he yelled grenade, and when he looked down, his platoon sergeant said, he saw all four of us crouching in our corners, and he knew we were all about to die. And instead of being the only person who could save himself, he jumped down in, covered the grenade, took the full force, and saved four lives with his own. Two of those were my constituents. Cedric Thomas was his platoon sergeant. If you've been in the military, you know. This is a platoon sergeant that screams and yells at the privates. And this private gave his life for his platoon sergeant. And another kid from uh, Tyler named Lawson, Private Lawson. Well, at the funeral, three of the four made it there back from Iraq. And it was very moving. Chaplain did a good job, 21-gun salute. Tap still gets me when I hear it. and. After taps, funeral's over. Everybody stands up. I think it's over. But Sergeant Thomas comes up and kneels before Ross's remains. Puts his hand on his remains and bows his head in prayer. He was followed by the other two, did the same thing. Sergeant told me he was thanking Ross for saving his life and he was thanking God for Ross. And that's when it hit me. That's what this weekend's about. We thank those who have served, especially the memory of those who've given all. Some give day after day. Some give all at one time. But we thank them and then we thank God for sending them so that we could be free. But I'm telling you, our country's in trouble. We're in real trouble. And yes, we're still pretty powerful. Military smaller than it was since before World War II. But that's not the biggest danger. The biggest danger is we've turned from God. And He is loving and merciful and long-suffering, but at some point, He's gonna pull back that hand of protection and we'll go the way that every country goes at some point. Or we can turn back, have another great awakening and have another hundred years. He gives us the choice. And thank God, He gives us the choice. I wouldn't have been so loving and merciful. But now is the time, you wanna do the best thing you could do for your country You know, Pastor Don's father served this country and then he came back and founded this church. You want to do the best thing you can for the country? Give your life to Jesus. Pastor Don. We hope that you enjoyed this message. You can find more messages and information about Tree of Life Church at treeoflifechurch.org. We'd like to invite you to come visit us at 5513 IH35 South in New Braunfels, Texas, or you can watch us on live stream. Thank you again for listening.